my name is Christina, and this is the Note History Podcast. I'm a college student, and on this show, I talk about what I've studied in my classes and what has sparked my interest as a history major. We're currently discussing two topics, African-American history and the subject of today's episode, American Environmental History. To recap, we started this series talking about Europeans' arrival in North America and how that changed the indigenous population. The differences between the two groups was due to their vastly different relationships with the natural world as a result of their different creation myths. Generally, Native Americans believed in living in harmony with the natural world because everything was connected spiritually, while Europeans believed that they were destined to conquer this new land because they had been told so in the Bible. Indigenous customs and ways of life dwindled along with the number of indigenous people that inhabited North America. As the new country intertwined with indigenous and European cultures and customs developed, it moved towards a commodity-driven mindset, which meant that handmade items and handmade cultivation were less desired than items and crops that could be produced and cultivated quicker with the aid of machines. The desire to make profits gave way to the market mentality. On today's episode, we'll continue discussing the changes that were happening and we will pivot into the specific topic that I wrote about when I took this class, which is the Florida waterways, including the Florida Everglades. As a reminder, I list all sources in the show notes as well as links when they're available, so be sure to check those out. All right, let's get into it. As I've said in the past, Europeans arriving in North America had been ingrained with their destiny, which was to conquer the world since it was made for them by God. They took that sentiment to heart, and once the new world was discovered, they believed it was their mission to subdue it as well as its people. According to the book Humans vs. Nature, A Global Environmental History by Daniel Hedrick, in 2000, Nobel Prize winning atmospheric chemist Paul Crutzen and ecologist Eugene Stormer coined the term Anthropocene to refer to the era when humans began to have a major impact on the environment. Climatologist William Rudman traced the beginning of the human impact on the planet to the first farmers and herders of the Neolithic age, which was about 10,000 years ago. What these leaders in their fields show is the very human yet futile custom of attaching dates to a long-term process. I admit that I like a timeline of historical events myself. However, timelines don't encompass all of the changes that were happening. Things could happen simultaneously, and it also doesn't provide any context for which something is happening. The human impact on the environment began in very small ways a long time ago, but grew gradually in fits and starts until the 18th century. Then it began to rise ever more sharply at an accelerating pace until we get to the present. What has changed over time was not the desire of humans to exploit their environments, but the technological and organizational means that they developed and employed against the rest of nature. That's what I was talking about earlier. Doing things with machinery and making items with the help of machinery was more desirable and became more prevalent because the higher quantity of items that you're able to make or produce equals more profit. At the end of the day, all living beings survive by extracting resources from their environment 
environments, and in the process, they compete with other living beings. In the context of our conversation, it is the newly arriving Europeans fighting with the indigenous people and their customs clashing. The indigenous population was decimated by the discovery of their world. However, it is said that nature has a way of preventing any one species from overwhelming and destroying the others. Environmental costs of commercial production did not reach most of America until the 19th century or the 1800s. According to the book, Major Problems in American Environmental History, retreating natives replaced by European American farmers that were attracted by cheap land was happening. Both the market and transportation revolutions meant that society became more materialistic and that included the farmers being commercial and profit driven. Last episode, I briefly discussed that as the country grew and expanded westward, there was a desire to build a railroad system that could link the increasingly vast lands and the construction of such a railroad would have significant impacts on the environment. Building the railroad lines was treacherous for workers and the environment. There were derailed trains, scalped workers, and workers had to carry guns to protect themselves. The Chinese who played a big part in constructing the most treacherous parts of the railroad were subject to horrible conditions and ended up striking for higher pay and better work conditions. Railroad workers lived in tents, had tough bosses, and would often suffer from hunger. However, the government pressed on, saying that the railroad would unite America, assist in trade with Asia, and would make the journey west a lot easier. Theoretically, a six-month journey could be shortened to just six days. By the 1890 census, the frontier was closing and the amount of free land was diminishing fast. Natural resources used for industrialization were almost gone and that gave way for an increased interest in conservation and preservation. At this time, the country practiced what was known as laissez-faire capitalism. According to Investopedia, laissez-faire is an economic theory from the 18th century that opposed any government intervention in business affairs and the driving principle behind laissez-faire translates to leave alone. The government leaves businesses alone and by extension society and the economy as a whole does better. In an effort to combat the impacts to the environment, the sentiment of what's good for the individual is good for the society or better summed up by the saying what's good for the goose is good for the gander was flipped to a more homocentric or utilitarian approach where the greatest good for the greatest amount of people should be the approach. This is also the time when resources were split into two categories and we still know and use them to this day. They are renewable and non-renewable resources. Overall, the goals of both conservation and preservation were to protect what we have and build up reserves of what was diminished. Both preservation and conservation, including preserving watersheds, building dams, replanting trees, and reseeding grasslands. 
A good example of this process is my chosen topic, and this is where we're going to pivot. All the major waterways in Florida are connected and play a huge part in the large variety of ecosystems in Florida. The Florida Everglades are the only place in the United States that is recognized as an international biosphere reserve, a world heritage site, as well as a wetland of international importance. Lake Okeechobee is the heart of the central Everglades and acts as a gatekeeper between the watershed from the north northern and southern Everglades. At times of high water, the southern part of the lake overflows and replenishes the Everglades with fresh water. As it continues flowing south, the water slowly soaks into the limestone rock and gets stored into underground caves called aquifers. These aquifers are Florida's freshwater source. In the mid-1800s, the Federal Swamp and Overflowed Lands Act gave the Everglades to the state of Florida with the provision that it would be drained. The drained lands were quickly taken over by agricultural interests, resulting in endless fields of sugarcane, rice, and urban development. On top of that, the ever-increasing population growth and rising pressure on the surrounding natural environment all exists on drained land within the Everglades. So this is where we're going to stop today's episode. Next episode, I'm going to try and explain the life of the Everglades from beginning to present and explain the process of preservation and conservation and how even though that is something that is desired the Everglades have shrunk more than half their original size so be sure to check back thank you for joining me today and I appreciate everyone and I hope everyone has a good rest of their day I will see everyone next time bye